Okay, guys, so I said last week that we would turn to the Spirit today, um, but I decided to wait one more week. Uh, the reason being that our approach to the Holy Spirit builds on previous knowledge. The simple fact is that as it pertains to the Trinity or the Holy Spirit um, in the Scriptures, we're just not given as much information as we are with the Father and the Son. And so we need to come to the Spirit by building from our knowledge on the Father and Son, and then kind of from that foundation taking a step over toward the Spirit. Um, so I figured, you know, if we weren't as clear as we needed to be on the Father and the Son and their relationship, then we necessarily get to the Spirit and start just getting confused or, or making mistakes. So... Um, tonight, then, our plan is to kind of take a step back from last week's lecture. Um, we were getting really f- into the fine details, talking about the, the, the nuances of one Greek word and so on and so forth. So we want to take a step back and look at things in a more complete um, manner and hopefully in a more clear and comprehensible way um, as well. So I want to just spend a little bit of time rehashing that and then from there uh, building on to new um, analysis. So the subject of our lecture last week was the distinction among the persons or better, what distinguishes the persons. Um, And the distinction we discovered is communicated in the divine personal names, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There is one Father and one Son, and one Spirit, those names are not interchangeable. And so something about those names, as God declares Himself to us, help us to understand why there are three. Um, It's hidden there in the way those names are used. And the question we asked then was, well, what's communicated to us in the divine personal names? And the answer we said is that there is something like fatherhood and sonship in the divine life right? Father and Son. There's a relationship there. Um, uh, It's a relational term, and there's a lot communicated there. And the analogy that the Scriptures give us um, that help us to understand this relation is procreation, the begetting of children. So we spent a lot of time last week in John chapter 1 looking at that very particular Greek word, monogenes. The Son is called the Father's only begotten. So what we said is that in some sense, and I really don't want to say more than that, in some sense, the Son is from the Father. And so when we put that down, we we then proceeded to qualify this begetter-begotten relation within the Godhead. The Son is from the Father, but not from the Father in any way that contradicts or upsets other more clearly defined doctrines. And so that's kind of a an insight into the theological method, right? So the Scripture indicates that the Son is from the Father. Now, how we understand that, we have to use other more clear doctrines um, that help us to modify and qualify what that means in such a way that um, we can say a little bit more clearly or at least unheretically what this fromness is. And so what we did was we really attempted to say three things. And the first and most important qualification we made was this. The Son is begotten from the Father within the divine essence. The Son is not produced by the will of the Father, as creatures are. Let there be light, let there be anything. But rather, He is begotten from within the divine essence, by, of the Father, by nature. So remember our passage, John chapter 5, verse 26 For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave the Son also to have life in Himself. So the Father and the Son possess the very same divine essence, namely self-existence, life in Himself. There are not two natures, but one, yet that very same nature is possessed in different ways by the different persons. The Father possesses the divine nature from no one, the Son has it from the Father. The Son's begottenness, therefore, does not amount to the production of a second divine being, but a divine person within the one divine nature. 
right? He's a, a, uh, a, the, the birth of a person rather than a secondary God. So, within the divine nature. And now the second qualification, and I want to expand on this a little bit more. Um, now the second qualification we made proceeds from the first. And it was this, that the Son is from the Father, but He's not after the Father. He's from Him, but not after Him. Remember, the divine nature transcends time. Therefore, we're to understand the Son's begetting um, as an eternal begetting. There are no befores or afters, no was not and is now in the Son's existence, but only in eter- and eternal present. The Son is from the Father, that's what we're trying to say, yet there was never a time when the Father was without His Son. So I think C.S. Lewis uh, provides us with a, uh, uh, a couple of helpful analogies. So he says this, and look, I've illustrated it for you right here. Imagine two books lying on a table, one on top of the other. Obviously, the bottom book is keeping the other one up, supporting it. It is because the underneath book that the one on top is resting, say, two inches from the surface of the table, instead of touching the table. Okay, fairly straightforward. The position of this book rests upon the position of that book. Um, And then Lewis continues, Let us call the underneath book A and the top one B. The The position of A is causing the position of B. That is clear. Now, let us imagine... It cannot really happen, of course, but it will do for an illustration that both books have been in that position forever and ever. In that case, B's position would always be resulting from A's position, but all the same, A's position would have never existed before B's position. In other words, the result does not come after the cause, right? That fairly straightforward? Um, I think for us, that's about the best illustration we could hope for. You have your two books. You have, um, so we could say the Son is from the Father as book B rests on top of book A, um, but it is an eternal fromness. The Father does not come before the Son, nor does the Son come after the Father as book A, and our illustration does not precede book B. And so actually, uh, I think Lewis, he provides another illustration, and I think this is Um, the best one. He says, I asked you now to imagine those two books, and probably most of you did. That is, you made an act of imagination, and as a result, you had a mental picture. Quite obviously, your act of imagining was the cause of the mental, uh, cause rather, and the mental picture the result. So again, fairly straightforward once again. Um, One's will acts And the result of the will acting is a picture that is held in the imagination. So Lewis goes on. But that does not mean that you first did the imagining and then got the picture. The moment you did it, the picture was there. Your will was keeping the picture before you all the time. Yet that act of the will and the picture began exactly at the same moment and ended at the same moment. So in other words, the act of the will and its product, at least mentally speaking, um, are not separated by moments in time, but they're simultaneous. So as soon as I began to picture the two books, or rather, as soon as my will acts, the image is before me. Now, I think if we were to parse it out, maybe, I don't know, there's some infinitesimal, whatever, small time between the will engaging and the picture forming. But for the illustration, it serves the purpose. So, Lewis, he concludes, he says, If there was a being who had always existed, and who had always been imagining one thing, his act would always have been producing the mental picture. But the picture would be just as internal as the act, eternal as the act. In the same way, we must think of the sun always, so to speak, streaming forth from the Father, like light from a lamp, or heat from a fire, or thoughts from a mind. Right, to see C.S. Lewis's explanation, both of those help at least make a little bit sense about what we're talking about when we say the Son is from the Father, but not after the Father. Yeah, at least it helps, right? It gets us a little bit way there. These illustrations are 
the best I could find, and they're pretty valiant attempts to conceptualize the inconceptual. Um, and thankfully, they do serve their purpose, and I think we're the better for them. Good evening, guys. No worries. Okay, so um, that helps us get a little bit of the way, right? Um, how, how the Son can be from the Father, yet not after the Father. And which leads us to the last qualification we made um, about the Son's begottenness from the Father, and that was that it's incomprehensible. You remember what Gregory of Nazianzus said, God's begetting ought to have the tribute of our reverent silence. The important point is for you to learn that he has been begotten. So the Father's begetting of the Son, remember we said this, this was our first qualification, it occurs within the divine essence. And because it occurs within the divine essence, it's utterly incomprehensible. The Scriptures do teach that there is a relation of fromness within the divine essence, giving us these names, Father and Son, analogies like begetting and etc., but in all our investigation, we must approach the mystery with due humility. And there's really two sides of theology. There's the side of theology that is um, really articulating what the church believes and um, defending against heresy. And a lot of what we did last week was that, where it's like, okay, it's not this. We're, 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 we're trying to point to the indeterminate middle. It's not this, it's not this. And that's fine. We need to do that. But what I'd like to do is, what excites me about theology is kind of pointing at the mystery. The Scriptures tell us that there is this some, that the Son is truly a Son because he, because he comes from His Father. Now what does that mean? I don't know. None of us know, and that's the exciting part about it. There's this glimpse, there's a hint that's given to us that's utterly beyond our comprehension. And the fun part of the theology, the part I love, is just pointing and saying, and you almost stand back and in, in, in reverence and fear and awe, like standing before the ocean or standing before a massive storm, whatever it is, there's an there's a excitement about it. And I feel that way when we're talking about these particular things. Now, I can't, no one can say what it is, but we can point. And as Nanzianza said, come at it with a, um, a reverent silence. It's just an awe that we stand before who God is. And so that little bit of rehash leads us to the subject of today's lecture, and that is teasing out and elaborating this father, uh, fatherhood, sonship relation in greater detail. And my hope is that um, this fromness within the divine nature would move from a strange and maybe semi-problematic doctrine to something more concrete, something that helps us to understand who our God is. Right? He's not that God, but he's this God who has shown him to, himself to be Father and Son. So, we'll begin with the Father. Now, as it pertains to the Father, we must start by identifying his name, indeed his person and identity, in relation to the Son. That is, the name Father when we use it to speak of this person in the divine, this person of the one God, when we use that name, um, it's not derived primarily from creation or redemption, but in relation to the Son in eternity. So consider Jesus' words, John 17, verses 25 and 26. They're on your paper on the screen. It says, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have now known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So implied here is that the knowledge of the Father came only through the appearance of the Son. Jesus says, Father, the world has not known you. And then he goes on, I have made your name known to them. So in other words, though the world has known the one whom they call God, 
They have not known him as he most truly is, and that is as Father. That knowledge only came, that, all, that knowledge is only made available in the manifestation of the Son. So let's go to the Old Testament for a second. The Old Testament does call God Father, but you look at the context in which it calls God Father, it's not in this Trinitarian context. So you think of where yeah, the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn. Okay, now clearly, if Israel's his firstborn, then he is the father of Israel. Now, well, how is it using, the scriptures using uh, the fatherhood of God in this sense? Well, not in relation to Christ, not in relation to the Trinity, but in relation to this people that he's redeemed from Egypt and that he's formed and that he's promised to care for and bring to maturity. There's a fatherhood there. Um, and then there's other passages that speak, a few in the Psalms, a few in the prophets that speak of fatherhood or make allusions to fatherhood um, in God's work of creation, bringing the earth into existence and exercising a benevolent care over creation. Father in that sense. But then we come to the New Testament, and this new sense of fatherhood is revealed. Jesus says, Father, they haven't known you. So however the Old Testament used father in the past, that's not what Jesus is talking about. There's a new element being introduced here, and it comes with the revelation of the Son. So the Son comes, and he starts talking about his Father. And something is going on here. A new introduction is being given to who this God is. So Karl Barth explains. Um, he says, Jesus did not proclaim the familiar Creator God and interpret Him by the unfamiliar name Father. He says, He revealed the unknown Father, His Father, and in so doing... And only so doing, he told for the first time that the Creator is, and, that, uh, and what he is, and that he is as such our Father. So this fatherhood, in relation to the Trinity, was unknown prior to the coming of the Son. The Son steps on the scene, and now this element of fatherhood is introduced, and therefore it modifies and interprets the fatherhood of God that was revealed in the Old Testament. So again, the point is, the revelation of the Father prior to the coming of the Son was unknown. Therefore, the name Father does not primarily denote the activity of creation or his providential care of the world, but the eternal begetting of the Son. That's what we're talking about when we use that term Father. Now, these other ones are involved, but we always have to go back to that central one, which is the Trinitarian one, right? Because if God is father in relation to Israel, well, there was no Israel, therefore he wasn't always father. If God is father in relation toward the creation, well, at one point there was no creation, and again, he was not always father. But when we say that he is father in relation to the Son, there was never a time when the Son wasn't, and therefore he was always father. That's his most central identity. Um, Gilles Emery, uh, he, he puts it this way, to say Father in the full sense of Trinitarian faith is not to designate, first of all, the relation of God to his creatures, but rather to signify before all else the eternal relation of the Father to his Son. Now, that's fairly straightforward, where we're naming him in relation to the Son, and likewise we name the Son in relation to his Father. They're bound up together. Now, the question here before us is, why is this Trinitarian understanding of the name Father important? Okay, what, what, what does this mean? What can we draw from it? What can we build from it? And I think there's two things, um, or two reasons why it's important. And I think the first is because, as we've just hinted at, it identifies God as the Father within His very being. Before anything else, Prior to all other names, he is Father. In other words, before he is a creator of the earth, before he is a ruler of the earth, before he's Savior, before all these other things, who he is in relation to the Son is Father. That is what constitutes this person of the Trinity. He is Father. So Michael Reeves, he helps, he says... Uh, it's not that this God does being Father as a day job, 
only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. It's not that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is father all the way down. Thus, all that he does, he does as father. So when we talk about the first person of the Trinity, we use the name father. And when we uh, say that, we're defining this is who he is. He is father before anything else. And so that knowledge ought to be quite a comfort to us. Um, and it really is, but I'll explain in just a bit. The second reason that the uh, Trinitarian understanding of the fatherhood of God is important is because it keeps a certain theological liberalism at bay. If we define fatherhood, as the Scriptures do, in relation to God's, to the, to the Son and the Spirit, to God's own life, um, it keeps a, a certain theological liberalism at bay. So in his book, What is Christianity? 20th century theologian Adolf von Harnack, maybe ever, he's one of those guys that kind of seeps in in the discussion sometimes. Um, so in his book, he defined Christianity as the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. So maybe you've heard that, universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Now, in a, certainly, in a certain highly qualified sense, we can stand behind Harnack's claim. The fatherhood of God over every creature is something the Scriptures consistently affirm, and the universal brotherhood of man is somewhat reflected in the second great commandment, but that's about as far as we can go. Why? Because Harnack's quasi-definition was aimed at downplaying the uniqueness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In other words, it was designed to incorporate and include the other world religions under its banner. So think about it. If the fatherhood of God simply means his providential care over all humans, and the universal brotherhood of man means our mutual responsibility for one another, then why are we wasting time on all this doctrine and dogma? Those things that divide, theology and uh, morality and distinctives, those don't really count. The thing that matters is that we all get along, right? And I'm sure if you haven't heard Harnack's formula, universal fatherhood of God, universal brotherhood of man, you're well, well aware of the effects that that definition has had on certain sectors of the church, right? Particularly the mainline denominations where it's all about uh, softening the sharp edges, um, not having this distinctness in the Christian faith. That comes from this liberalizing tendency. So when the fatherhood of God is dislocated from its Trinitarian socket in relation to the only begotten, it can be twisted and turned to endorse almost any theological project. Fatherhood of God meaning something very general. Now, the most primary meaning of the fatherhood of God, however, is not as Harnack imagined. God is Father as the Father of His Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, keeping this specific Trinitarian understanding of the fatherhood of God protects the church from a liberal drift. Bart, whom we quoted earlier, um, and I like to really quote him on these things because when in the 20th century, all Protestant theology, or at least good Protestant theology was going the way of this liberalism. The German academy was very, very influential. And Barth, who was trained in those German academies, along with Dietrich Bonhoeffer at the time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of his students, um, Barth was disaffected. World War I happened, and, and, and uh, he saw this liberal Christianity kind of for what it was, and he took a stand. And, and he began, unafraid to talk about the Lordship of Christ, in, in this very distinctness of the Christian faith. And so he became a champion for this Trinitarian understanding of God. So he says, um, the doctrine of the Trinity is basically what distinguishes the Christian doctrine of God as Christian in contrast to all other possible doctrines of God. So thus, in holding this Trinitarian understanding of fatherhood in precedence, 
over the creational understanding of fatherhood, we preserve the uniqueness of our religion, and more importantly, the uniqueness of the revelation brought to us in Jesus Christ. They didn't know you, Father, but now I've come and they know you. You see, if you take that away from Jesus, it can go anywhere now. It can do anything. You can use it however you want, but if you tie it to Jesus, it, it, it can't move from that, and you always have to refer back to Jesus to make sense of it. So, we may stand upon the two great commandments, and we do, loving our God and loving our neighbor unapologetically, yet not in such a way as to diminish the finality of Christ, which kind of what was Harnack was trying to do. Um, so the, we ask the question, who is God? Who is this one whom we call Father? He is the Father of Jesus Christ and none other, and is accessible through none other. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You have to keep those two together. Okay. Any questions um, about the fatherhood of God? Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, okay, so I'll answer, I'll say one thing and then I'll get to your question. Is um, In the New Testament, what you'll find is that the name Father and the general term God are kind of synonymous. So, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Um, so, there is a sense where it's God and His Son, and, and, and that, that language kind of of Father gets truncated, or of God, rather, gets truncated to the Father. Um, and we don't see the Son only but in a few patch, passages explicitly referred to as God. Uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, um, Romans 9, uh, 1 in Titus, 1 in Jude, where it, 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 it just says, calls Jesus God. So you, what you find is typically God just refers to the Father, although the Son and the Spirit are also that. So then your question, when you have these other names, specifically in the Old Testament, right, where you're thinking of a bunch of these names that are multiplied for God, we have to go back and think, okay, is this talking only about the Father or only about the Son? And a rule of interpretation that people have taken is that, well, okay, there's no difference in, in, uh, in their being, in their attributes, and who they are. So therefore, when it calls God... Um, Almighty, calls him healer, calls him shepherd, we refer that to the three. Um, now, that might not be in, in, in the reference of the, the individual writer, but with the knowledge and revelation we have from the New Testament, we'd say, well, yeah, that can't only be true. It's not that the Father is only healer and the Son and the Spirit aren't, but they're necessarily included in that. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, okay, so the angel of the Lord is interesting because the angel of the Lord is typically taught as being a, a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ, um, and that's typically how it's introduced. Um, and that's certainly a view to go by it. Um, I tend to think of the angel as literally an angel who, um, you know, certain things are, are, how do you say it, are, are merged with God's presence closer than other things, so that this angel becomes a, a stand-in for God's presence. And that's kind of what you find in the Scripture, is like in some passages, I'd have to go to them, and I'm not as familiar as I should be, but you'll find at one point the angel is referred to as Lord, and then another moment it's an angel. Um, and it's kind of, you're left in limbo. You're wondering, okay, is this Yahweh or is it not? Same thing with the, 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 the burning bush. Um, it, if I'm not wrong, it, Moses spoke to the Lord, but then it's also the angel of the Lord there as well. Um, I have to look at the passages, but anyway, going through this now, I'm, I tend to fall in the position now where that the angel of the Lord is simply an angel of the Lord who, um, like the Ark of the Covenant, like these certain things, carries God's presence in a, 
unique way for a unique purpose in a unique time and place, rather than um, because you just say, well, if it's the sun, I think, at least as I understood it in the past, that if the angel of the Lord was the sun, I kind of understood it was like, well, the sun is, for whatever reason, he's form-fitted to reveal himself to creation and the Father isn't. And I think when we say that, what we're doing is creating a divide between the Son and the Father, that somehow he's necessarily uh, more capable of revealing himself in this way and the Father is not. That's how I, take, how I had taken it in the past and why it's kind of led me to think through that a little bit more and incomplete. Mike. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. And that's because the Hebrews thought uh, very highly of angels. As a matter of fact, yes. their uh, thought is that the law was given to man through the angels. Yeah, Genesis, I mean, uh, uh, Galatians 3, yeah. So that but when you accept that mm-hmm. that kind of de- uh, destroys what they thought about angels. Yes. Yeah. Um, as 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 being something special. Right. And in some cases angels were even ascribed some sort of quasi worship in some of that second temple right. literature. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and I think we'll have to make a distinction between because the angel, the the word angel just simply means messenger. So someone could say, okay, well, not an angel in that sense, as in a secondary being, but as in a, a messenger in that sense. So they might, you might still be able to wiggle around that one. But I agree a hundred percent that um, that's the argument that Hebrews one makes. Yeah, he's not. He's a son. To which of his sons, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? Right. Yeah, 100%. Mike, did you have anything to add? Yeah. Yeah. I'm confused as to which... Oh, you're talking, yeah. Yeah. Well, the Revelation one is clearly Jesus. And the Daniel one, one like the Son of Man, right? Or not the Son of Man. The, when he goes up to the Ancient of Days, is that what you're talking about? Oh, when he's in the furnace. No, no, not that one? A fourth one, one like the Son of God, or one like a, one of the sons of God, or something like that. Yeah, and I think maybe the, the, the issue that, or were, and I'm speaking just strictly for myself here, I haven't studied these passages, was that I was thinking the angel of the Lord, and I was thinking the man Jesus. I mean, God is not in, he's not in a, a corporal form. Jesus, the Son, is a spirit, as infinite, as omnipresent as the Father. And so this angel of the Lord, is it a, is it a temporary body that Jesus assumes? Yes. So there's no body there. There's no body that comes into play. Yeah, which that and that that's what changed for me because if you think okay, maybe he's I don't know, taking the form of I don't know. I don't know. So it kind of mystifies it a little bit. Daniel 10. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fun way to go back into the Old Testament and then start looking at it and and try to put the pieces together and Yes, no, that's true, that's true. And I'll have to look at that Daniel 10 passage because I'm, I'm ignorant at the moment. 
So any questions uh, on that one? We'll have to kind of just leave that. <laughs> we'll have to leave that one hanging and move forward. So, um, okay, with this uh, Trinitarian understanding of the fatherhood in place, we can now explore its meaning. And um, so what the theologians say is that the father's distinctive personal property, what makes him who he is as opposed to the son and the spirit, is that he is without principle. The father, what makes him the father, is that he is without principle. So we haven't got to the spirit, but bear with me. So unlike the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Father doesn't have his divinity from another. The Son is from the Father. We'll find out next week the Holy Spirit is from the Father and the Son, but the Father himself is from no one. So he is, as it's been said, the principle without principle. Or, and bear in mind we're using human language here, he's the source who has no origin. Whereas the Son has his origin in the Father, the Spirit has his origin in the Father and the Son, Again, the Father doesn't have this origin of relation. So, uh, again, Gilles Emery, to confess the Father as principle without principle is to recognize that the Trinity derives its unity from the Father because he is the Father who communicates the one divine essence, rather nature, to the Son and the Holy Spirit. So he shares it with them, but no one has shared it with him, right? This is what it means. That's what we're saying. We're, we're just kind of floating terms out there to try and make sense of this, principle without principle. So, in other words, the Father is, people have said, the, the font. He's the wellspring. He's the origin of um, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Hence, again, the name Father. He has his divinity from no one, and they have their divinity from him. So, again, for this reason, the church fathers, they've used such terms as author, um, cause, that's kind of problematic, but um, kind of, again, using terms to, to, to get this idea across that the Son comes from the Father, and so does the Holy Spirit, but He comes from no one. Um, so, again, this comes off as very highbrow and scholastic, um, but it's not. It's definitely not. Uh, consider this. To communicate the divine life to the Son and to the Spirit is what makes the Father the Father. In his very nature, what constitutes his person and identity is that he shares life, that he is outgoing life. Listen to Michael Reeves. He says, the Father is called Father because he is a Father, and a Father is a person who gives life, who begets children. Now that insight is like a stick of dynamite in all our thoughts about God. For if before all things God was eternally a Father, then this God is inherently outgoing, an inherently outgoing life-giving God. He did, not first, he did not give life for the first time when he decided to create. From eternity, he has been life-giving. Indeed, that is like a stick of dynamite in our thoughts about God. We call him God, but more specifically as it pertains to this person, the, right, the more, most proper word to use for him is that he is a father. To beget, to give life, is not an action that God does and then ceases from doing, something that's only true of him relatively, but what constitutes his very identity, the foundation of his person. Person, Quite simply, he is the giver of life. And now, when we think about that, just, you know, to be pastoral for a moment, you know, we often struggle with the fatherhood of God, with God in general. We relate to him as a lawgiver. We relate to him as a creator or whatever, divine policeman. And, and there's always, I find it a lot, that there's this kind of fear of God the Father. You know, I heard someone once say, say one time that God is, you know, stern and implacable and the Son is, he's my friend, right? And, and we kind of get this idea sometimes that the Son comes to, to shelter us from the Father's wrath and, you know, that whole thing. This Trinitarian understanding dispels all that. Who the Father is is outgoing life. His very nature is, or his very personhood and identity is constituted in giving life to his Son. He's a life-giving, sharing, generous. Think about some of the passages uh, when Jesus talks about his Father. He says, uh, if your earthly fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more your Father in heaven, right? If, 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 if we, being evil, 
as fathers can do this much, how, how much more your heavenly father? Again, it's this idea that he, he is this outgoing um, life. That is what makes the father the father. So any questions on that, on the father, before we uh, move on? Okay, all right. So now let's go to the son. Now we considered this a lot, but um, we're going to fine-tune it a little bit this week. The name son requires um, less qualification than the father. Um, calling to mind our lecture last week on his eternal begetting from the father, we have already established that the son is emphatically not a name picked up in the incarnation um, or something that was ascribed to him later uh, by his followers. Rather, it's an eternal name indicating the very nature and identity of Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Son of God. Therefore, as made known by his name, the Son's personal property, that which distinguishes him from the Father and the Holy Spirit, is begottenness. He is from the Father. Now to peek over a little bit into next week. You see the Son's uniqueness in the fact that the Holy Spirit is not another son. The Holy Spirit is from the Father as well. We'll find that out. But he's not another son. He, he, the Father is never the Father of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's never the brother of the Son. But he's the Holy Spirit. So it indicates something different about him and also something different about the Son. There's only one Son within the Godhead, and that's Jesus Christ. And so when we try to figure out, okay, well, what makes the Son distinct? We have to use that name. And what does that name indicate? That he is from the Father. Now, the technical word theologians use to describe the Son's distinct personal property is filiation. Now, filiation, according to its human definition, is the fact of being or of being designated the child of a particular parent or parents. Therefore, we might say that the Son is defined by his filial relation to his Father. He's defined by his sonship. Again, we're going to Gilles Emery once more. He says, With the term filiation, the dogmatic tradition has underscored that the entire divine nature is communicated to the Son, who has it in a distinct mode, namely, as received from the Father. In other words, when we get to this second person of the Trinity and we ask what makes them who, they, who he is, we say his sonship. That's what constitutes his particular identity within the Godhead. He is constituted and defined by the eternal act by which he receives all the divine being, wisdom, and love of the Father. Okay, So it's very easy to just kind of look at the Father and the Son and see, okay, they're defined in relation to one another. The Father is who he is because he gives life to the Son. The Son is who he is because he receives life from the Father. Now, we might explore the Son's personal property of sonship, by considering three principal metaphors Scripture uses to describe him. Now, we're going to rehash a little bit less from what we said last week, but we're going to expand upon it quite a bit. So the first is the Word. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So right at the outset, the name or title Word is suggestive. Communicated in the very metaphor of speaking is a particular order. A word is not spoken of itself. It does not originate out of thin air, but it comes from a speaker. In other words, a word has its source and origin in another, from the Father who speaks him. Or more simply, the word is someone else's word. The word who comes among us is someone else's Word. There's a speaker behind him, someone who is giving this utterance. But the metaphor of word and speaker yields still more insight. Human, in, human words, by their very nature, are manifestations. That is, through our words, um, through words, our mind expresses that which it conceives. The hidden interiority of a person is made known in their speech. So you might know me by some of the actions you've seen me do. You might know me by the way I dress, things I like. But until we have a conversation and I conceal my inwardness through my words, 
They're not necessarily going to know me, and likewise me with you or with anybody. And I think that's where the metaphor is leading us. In like manner, the Word is the self-manifestation of its speaker. There's a speaker who's telling us about himself in his Word. He's indicating who he is. So, um, listen to Gregory of Nanzianzus. He says, He is Word because he is related to the Father as Word is to mind. Through the connection and uh, declaratory function involved in the relationship. His relationship is that of a definition to the term defined. The Son is the concise and simple revelation of the Father's nature. I love what Gregory of Nanzianzus says there. His relationship is that of a definition to the term defined. So you say, define God. And say, okay, well, let's define him by his word. And his word is Jesus Christ. He's the self-utterance of the Father. And so just as our words do not reveal themselves, but the mind, the speaker behind them, so the word, so the word rather, does not reveal himself, but the mind who speaks him. As if the word, uh, sorry, and the word um, that is revealed through the mind, um, and if it reveals the mind, then it is equal to him. Right? I guess what I'm trying to say, God does not speak a word that's lesser than him. His word is a complete word, and it's not fragmentary. It's a perfect word. So you might think of God as the, the most eloquent and mighty speaker there was. You know, we humans labor to just try and say what we mean, just to try to get it out. You think an argument or something, or you're trying to articulate yourself, and there's just so much, and you can't say it. The Father is such a mighty speaker that when He speaks, He speaks Himself, but in the Son. The Son is the the definition, the very same nature as the Father. Again, as the Apostle John says, this Word of God is God Himself, and the Word was God. So God speaks a Word, but He speaks Himself in the Son. Any questions about the Word? That's one of my favorite images in all the New Testament for Jesus. The the definition, the image, the speaker, and the spoken. So, the second one is image. Um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So, the name image, like word, speaks of the Son's relationship to the Father. The Son is the image of the Father. In the Greek, it's the word um, icon. It's E-I-K-O-N, and it can mean a portrait or a representation or having the same form as something else. So the image, whatever it is, um, be it a portrait, a coin, or a reflection, images takes its pattern from another. Once again, there's a certain order and succession to the analogy. The Son is the image of the Father, and never the reverse. Um, uh, 2 Corinthians 4 has the same imagery, or same, it uses image for the Son as well, um, as well as a passage we'll look at in just a minute. Now, at face value, that might not strike us as all that important of a distinction to make, but understanding the Son's eternal begetting um, in this uh, relationship of image um, when we approach it through that, its inner logic shines forth. The Son is the image of the Father and never, and never the reverse. Why? Because the Son is from the Father. Being born of the Father in eternity, the Son bears His eternal image. I'm, heard, I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard the phrase, He's a spitting image of His Father. Well, yeah, that's what we're talking about here. He, the, the Son images the Father. Another Gregory, this time Gregory of Nyssa, he puts it this way. The Son, being in the Father as the beauty of the image, is not to be found in the form from, or sorry, is to be found in the form from which it has been outlined. And the Father in the Son as the origin, original beauty is to be found in the image of itself. So Nyssa says that the Father is the original beauty, and the Son is the form or the outline of that original beauty. 
And again, Gregory of Nyssa is not um, advocating anything new. This is the Apostle Paul's teaching, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So in the passage, we have two objects, God and Jesus, who existed in the form of God. So there's God, the archetype, and Jesus, the ectype, to use a human analogy. And the ectype is not less than the archetype because, as the Apostle Paul says, he possesses equality with God. The Son is the image of the Father, yet not lesser than the Father, but the perfect and complete beauty of the Father reflected back to him in the person of the Son. So the Father looks to his Son, and what he sees is himself. The only difference is that this one is the Son, and the other is the Father. It's the very same thing, the exact image of the Father. Now, I think here's where this begins to be so wonderful. The Son's image helps us better understand our creation and recreation. So consider this. The Scripture says that the Son is the image of God, but we are created, finish it out for me, we are created in the image of God. The Son is the image, and we are created in the image. In other words, the Son is the perfect and divine image of God, while we, human beings, are the creaturely analog, created in His image. So in a sense, all of creation, think about uh, all these passages, they speak about creation coming through the Son. Um, So in a sense, the whole creation is the image of the image, or in the image of the image, rather. Why? Again, because the world came into being through the Son. Again, it's, it's, it's as if the image, the sun, is the model or the archetype through which the work of creation is filtered. And so this makes, helps us make sense of why the Son and not the Father and the Holy Spirit become incarnate. You guys ever considered that? Why didn't the Father become incarnate? Why didn't the Holy Spirit become incarnate? Could they have become incarnate? Yet it wasn't them, it was the Son. So it raises the question, Why? Well, I think the answer is found in the fact that the Son is the image of the Father. Um, It would be entirely fitting that the image, um, the one whom we are patterned after, would be the one to assume our nature um, to accomplish our redemption. Um, We're in the image of the image. He is the image. And so there's a fittingness there that the Father wouldn't be incarnate, nor the Spirit, but the one in whose image we're made. So listen to these, I think, utterly profound words from Thomas Aquinas. He says, In as far as he is the image, the Son has a kinship with that which he must restore. That is to say, with man who is created in the image of God. That is why it is fitting that the image assumes the image. That is to say, the uncreated image assumes the created image. Humans were created in the image, but we ruined that image through sin. We disfigured it. We marred it. And to restore us, the true and uncreated image assumed our frail and imperfect image to restore us to its original likeness. As the scripture says, go ahead, Jeff. Yes. I think you'd say both, right? Because he takes on human nature, which is in the image of God, and he himself being the image, there's uh, 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 both of those that are going on. And that's kind of the mystery of Christology, right? It's like Jesus says, I'm the truth. Well, he's the truth about God, and he's the truth about man. You know, he, he, he shows us how to love God, and he shows us, or he shows us who God is, and he shows us what humanity is. So I think you'd say both, yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And in Romans 5 8 says that. Um, 
uh, the, the, the I don't know if it's God or the Father. The Father's love is revealed to us in this that you know He sends. I'm, I'm confusing scriptures. John three sixteen, Romans five eight. But that's yeah, that's absolutely part of it. That's absolutely part of it. And I think we have to say that the Father could have been incarnate and the Spirit could have been incarnate. Otherwise, it's there. If, if if you say they can't, it's I think we're running into some issues there. Um, you'd have to be able to explain why they can't. And it seems hard to say they can't without saying there's some real substantial difference there. Um, but it makes sense when you consider all, along these lines that creation is made in the image of the Son and his relationship to the Father. So uh, to go back to Romans 8.29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren, or that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So you see, the image comes to restore us in the image of God, right? To, to um, bring us back to what we were intended for. And because of this, I think, just to float this out there, some people have said that, uh, and, and I think it has some merit to it, that God's plan from the beginning was that the incarnation would have always happened. Um, now, 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 why? What, what's the point? Well, I don't, you don't, I don't think the Son's incarnation is something new that wouldn't have happened. Because it's not that, I think the original plan from creation was where we get to at the end of the Bible. It just got interrupted by sin. And so some people make that the Son is in the image. We were originally created in the image for that purpose of the divine and the human being merged, that it would have been that way all along. Now, I'm not going to stand on that. I think it's interesting and really exciting, but uh, um, I think there's some merit to it. And I think also a faint glimmer of the creation's purpose begins to shine through. Again, the cosmos is the created image, um, is created rather as the image of the uncreated image. So the creation, in other words, is a creaturely reflection of the Son's eternal relationship to the Father. The creation is a creaturely echo, uh, a reverberation of the Son's fromness in the Father. Right, His relation, his proceeding forth, his begetting from the Father, the creation is a, a creaturely picture of that, created through the Son. Now, I don't know what that means, um, but I think that's what the Scripture gets at when it says we're in the image of the image, we're created through the Word, and so on and so forth. Anyway, um, throwing those out there. The last one that we'll consider is Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. So observe again, uh, there's a particular sequence to the analogy. The Father is said to be or to possess glory, while the Son is the radiance, the issuing forth of that glory. Like the previous analogy, word and image, radiance signifies that the Son is from the Father, as lamp proceeds from, or rather as light proceeds from a lamp, and radiance from glory, so the Son proceeds from the Father. And that order can't be reversed, right? It would be definitely wrong to say that uh, the Father is the radiance of the Son's glory because he doesn't come from the Son. The Son comes from the Father. Um, and the next phrase in that passage communicates exactly that. The Son is the exact representation of his nature. In the Greek, that word or that phrase, exact representation, is one word, and it's uh, something like char character. And... Um, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And that word, exact uh, representation, um, some Bibles say the exact imprint, um, the, I can't think of what the other ones say, um, but what that word means is impression or an engraving mark. And therefore, some translators have used that word imprint. So the image that's conveyed to us when we think about the exact representation of his nature um, is of a, uh, a, a template or a pattern that's embossed or imprinted onto another object. So think a signet ring that's pressed into wax. You pull it away and there's the exact rep representation, the, the, the opposite side of the image. Or think of a stamp that's rolled onto a paper or a coin minted from its template. That's how we're to understand the sun being the exact representation of the Father. He's the imprint of the Father, yet not less than the Father, 
not diminished from the Father, but exactly the same. So, fatherhood, sonship. We're using a whole lot of words to just try to say one is from the other. And I want to wrap this up um, just by talking about this father-sonship relation um, and our salvation. And I'd like to take you to the Apostle John's words as our starting point. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. How great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. So, the fatherhood-sonship relation existing among the divine persons, a begetter, a begotten, glory, the issue of that glory, the um, original and the image. Um, What it means is that these words, the Father calling us his children, are not merely metaphorical. That is, the adoption that we receive in salvation, being called children of God, is founded upon reality. We might put it this way. The Son is the Father's child by nature. We are his children by grace. He's the true and proper Son, and we are incorporated into that relationship by grace. So, that fatherhood-sonship relation, the Father loving the Son, the Father giving his life to the Son, so on and so forth, our salvation is an incorporation into that relationship. What is the the phrase that's repeated repeated at nauseum in the New Testament. We are in Christ. We're baptized into Him. So the relationship that He shares to the Father, His eternal sonship, is granted to us. That's why the Bible says that we are adopted. Think of, well, I'm not going to get ahead of myself. Let me read uh, uh, Hilary of Potier, it's a French place. He says, Multitudes of us are sons of God. He is son in another sense, for he is God's true and own son, by origin and not by adoption, not in name only, but in truth, born and not created. So Christ is the Father's true and proper son, and the true and proper son comes among us, and he becomes incarnate, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Think of that Galatians 4 passage. The Father sends His Son, and He adopts us into the family, and then the Father sends His Spirit that we might cry out, Abba, Father. So think about that. Where did Jesus say Abba, Father in His life? He's in Gethsemane. He's going to the cross, and He says, Father, Dad, if there's any way that you can spare me, spare me but not as I will, but as you will. And then the Spirit comes. The Spirit of the Son comes and helps us to say those same words. So what's indicated there? This is the way Jesus speaks to the Father. And the Spirit comes, the Son comes, and we're taught to say those same words. The relationship that the Son has to the Father, we're incorporated into that. That's what our salvation is. We get to share in God's life. So um, let me just wrap it up with a few points on prayer. Uh, consider how Jesus taught us to pray. What are the first words of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. Not our God, not our ruler, not our Lord. Our Father. Now, why did he say Father? Because that's how he talks to God. It's his Father. And now, think of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. I go to my Father and to your Father. Right? John chapter 20. So, when we're prayed, when we pray, I'm uh, I'm sure you've heard this often, is that we're to put ourselves in the presence of God. That's good advice. I think it's probably more helpful to say, put yourself in the place of Jesus. That's what we're doing when we're praying. We're assuming Jesus's relation to the Father. Um, you know, again, it sounds pretty ambitious to say something like that, even presumptuous, but that's what the New Testament tells us. Our prayer happens in the Son. That is, we have our access to the Father in Him. We don't approach the Father on our own accord, on our own initiative, but we approach Him in the name of the Son, in the Son Himself. 
And so that means the goal of our prayer isn't necessarily to say our own words um, or to express our own heart or uh, whatever. Rather, it's to repeat the Son's words after Him, to speak to the Father as He does. Uh, so you, you think of uh, this conversation that's been happening eternally between the Father and the Son. And then he says, okay, I'm going to bring you into this. The goal is not so that we come in and start blurting our own words. It's that that we might learn how to relate to the Father as his Son does, to have that same relationship, to talk to him in the same way. And anyway, that's what the Lord's Prayer is. It's the Son's prayer to the Father. Um, So we're always trying to speak the Lord's words after him. And I'll just end with this quote from St. Cyprian on the Lord's Prayer. He says, When we make our prayer, let the Father recognize the words of his Son. May he who lives inside our hearts be also in our voice.